The UC Wellbeing Channel, your portal to a balanced body and mind. Continue your journey at uctv.tv slash wellbeing. So this final session is on creativity and infinite possibilities. And our guest speaker for this morning is Dr. Leonard Maldonado. He is a theoretical physicist and author of numerous academic research papers in physics and seven popular science books, including Subliminal, How Our Unconscious Mind Rules Our Behavior, and The Drunkard's Walk, How Randomness Rules Our Lives, which was a New York Times editor's choice and New York Times notable book of the year. Leonard was also the co-author with Deepak on the book War of the Worldviews. Dr. Maldonado's topic today is Elastic, the Science of Flexible Thinking in a Time of Change. Welcome, Leonard Maldonado. Hi, everybody, and uh, thanks for leaving the coffee and coming back here, because <laughs> I know that uh, there won't be any more when I'm done, so... It's good to get it now. <clears throat> I'm, and I want, I'd like to start by thanking Deepak for having me here and for having, holding this wonderful conference. I call it the, the, uh, the Deepak TED conference. <laughs> and bringing together uh, really uh, some great speakers telling us about the latest ideas in science uh, and also in spirituality and bringing us together and always in welcoming people with other opinions, which is one of the things I really admire about Deepak and it plays well, very well into the theme of my talk, which is about elastic thinking. Uh, I'm going to give you a preview of my book, which will be out at the end of 2017 or early 2018. It's called Elastic, the Science of Flexible Thinking in a Time of Change. And uh, all I can do, hope to do today, is give you a little taste of it, a little introduction to the topic. But what I hope to do is to get you thinking about the way that you think. The way our society tends to approach problems and issues really came from something called the Age of Reason, a period called the Age of Reason, or sometimes called the Long Century, because it started in the late 1600s, and it went on until the early 1800s. Inspired somewhat by, or largely by, Isaac Newton's successes in science, it was a period in which people came to believe that ideas centered on reason as the primary, uh, that reason should be the primary source of authority and legitimacy as we face issues in politics and science, communications, philosophy. And it was really epitomized by the book that you see there called The Age of Reason by, by Thomas Paine. Today we live in what I believe is an analogous revolutionary time that historians will look back on. I call it the, the age of elasticity. And this is a, day, a time where it's not reason that really characterizes the ideas or the way we need to think to thrive in society, but it, it's, it's, a, it's flexible thinking. It's, it's a kind of thinking where it's not the analysis that's important, but it's the way we look at problems, learning to look at problems in different ways and uh, understand new paradigms and at the time of disruptive change in our society. And this is also driven by science, in this case by technology and computer innovations. And it was also, by the way, I think epitomized by this book that you may know, Future Shock, which is decades old. In fact, Alvin Toffler uh, died recently, but I think he was prescient and he came, he saw this really toward the very beginning and some of the ideas that he was talking about are really just starting to come to fruition today. So I'm gonna talk about the the implications of the age of elasticity for the way we have to think in the 21st century. 
<laughs> this is what we tend to do, but I'm, I'm going to really argue to stand up, be active, and do other things. So uh, humans and other animals have, in some sense, three modes of thought. And thought is a charged word, so I want to clarify. By thought here, I, I just mean information processing done in the brains of animals. I don't want to discuss about where it comes from, whether it's uh, what's primary, Deepak, or if Michael Shermer is still here. I just want to talk about really the, uh, the science and the neuroscience and psychology of it. This is a, a goose, a mother goose sitting on a nest of, of eggs. And when we see this mother goose and we watch her behavior, we tell ourselves certain stories about what she's thinking and why she's behaving the way she does. For instance, if, uh, if one of her eggs falls out, she will reach over and do what's called egg rolling. She'll put her bill down and she'll nudge the, net, the egg back into the nest. And when we see this, we go, wow, the mother has these awesome emotional maternal feelings of love towards its uh, future uh, children. And it sees that the egg is out. It knows that the egg really needs to be in the nest, so it takes this action to do that. But actually, scientists have shown this is probably not what's going on in the goose's head, okay? For example, if you put like a billiard ball there instead of an egg, the goose will do the same thing. In fact, that is a billiard ball. It's a little fuzzy picture, so it looks like an egg. I tricked you, but it's really a billiard ball. It would, but the goose will do this to other similar objects or even not so similar. For instance, a Russian doll. It'll nudge a Russian doll into its nest if you put it nearby. A light bulb or virtually any object that looks anything like an, a, uh, an egg, but is clearly not an egg. So what, what is really going on? <clears throat> well, psychologists call these fixed action scripts. They're little programs that you have in your head that say when you, see a certain, when you experience a certain stimulus, take these actions, execute this program. It's kind of like a computer. Now, you, this is something that lower animals do most of the time, and you might think that we don't do it, but I want to convince you that we do. And in the time I have, I'll just show you one example. Some years ago, a psychologist set up this experiment where one of her graduate students hung out near the Xerox machine. And when someone went up to the Xerox machine to make copies, the graduate student walked over with some papers, as is pictured here, and said, excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine? Always the same script because it's a controlled experiment. And the question is, how often will the person agree? Well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. So it was 60% was the success rate when the person had this request. Well, being social uh, animals, uh, you, you might, and thinking animals, you, there are ways to increase your probability of success here. And the way that you might think is the best way is to give a, a good reason. So the researcher also had another uh, version of the request. Excuse me, I have five pages, may I use a Xerox machine? because I'm in a rush. So now you're giving a reason and a very valid reason, and no surprise, it, it raises the, the success rate to 94%. So just like the goose seemed to be pulling the egg, and this, if we see this happening, we, we tell ourselves a story that the person is at the Xerox machine taking in a request, listening to the good reason, saying, oh, that's a good reason, I'll let the person in, and the, and the success rate goes up to 94%. But that's actually not really what's going on. And to show that, the researcher had the, re the, the graduate students also use this request. Excuse me, I have five pages. May I use a Xerox machine? Because I have some copies to make, okay? 
That's not a good reason. In fact, that adds, uh, from the information science point of view, that adds zero bits to your information because if you say I have five pages, may I use a Xerox machine, you already know that the person has some copies to make. So that, if the person is doing what I just said, taking in the request, saying it's a good reason, thinking about it, that would, you'd get a 60% and you'd go back to the 60% success rate. But if something else is going on, that could be successful. And in fact, it had about the same success as saying because I'm in a rush. What's going on here is that we all have various fixed action scripts in our brains that cause us to go through life reacting to situations in certain ways. The stimulus is somebody comes up to you with a reason, you don't think about the reason, and the, the response is you say, sure. We, you know, when we drive a car, we call that autopilot, but you know, th that's how we navigate, let's say, to work. But we all have a lot of fixed action scripts in our heads, and that's one of the main ways that animals think. It's instinctive, it's a very fundamental way of thought, and it, the reason that we and other animals do it is it usually works. So the reason I told this story is when does it not work? It doesn't work in a situation of change or some unexpected thing going on. So if instead of an egg there's a Russian doll there, the goose's method, uh, the goose's activity is pointless and fails to, to have any good result, it's a waste of time. So change causes this way of thinking not to work. Now, we animals, especially somewhat in birds and especially in mammals and especially, especially in primates and especially, especially, especially in humans, we have another way of thinking called logical, rational thought, which is the way that was celebrated in the age of reason and has been ever since. Computers are the ultimate in this. In fact, we've done so well with our rational, logical thinking that we can automate it now, as you, and you, as you saw some really wonderful applications of that in the panel before I started speaking. Uh, we can have computers execute rational, logical thought and do a lot of uh, reason analysis for us. And this slide just shows three of the more um, um, ways that got the most publicity. One is the Deep Blue, uh, which is the computer program that beat the human champion in chess. In the center, you'll, you'll see um, Watson, who beat uh, the, the best human players in Jeopardy. And at the bottom, more recently, Google... Uh, deep mind that beat the best human players in Go, which is a game that's much, much harder and more complicated than chess. So we've uh, come a long way in, in, in applying our reason and even in automating it. But like fixed action scripts, reason, logic, rational thought fails in times of change. For example, if you take the, if you change the game of chess by taking the corners off the, the, the chessboard or make any other simple change in the rules, the computer will suddenly be stupid. Okay, the computer knows how to reason based on certain rules, but it doesn't know how to set up the problem, how to, how to set up the, the, the paradigm for which it has to attack this problem. It just attacks the problem based on, on a, a fixed set of rules. People can adapt. People can look at things a different way and figure out what's going on. So a person is much better if you change the rules than a computer. So rational thought, like fixed action scripts, it's, it's a better approach, it is more flexible, and it works for complex problems if they're similar to other problems we've had before, but it fails when a new approach is needed. And I like this quote of Einstein who said, I never made one of my discoveries through the process of rational thinking. So rational thinking is really good. I call it something the engineers use because they, they take the physics equations and apply them, but if you want to invent new equations, you have to go beyond that. And 
In today's world, I'm arguing that, you, that our normal thinking has to go beyond that. To really thrive in the world today, which I call the age of elasticity, the rapid changes that we're seeing in society demand a different mode of thinking. So I say that today we live on what I call the fat, the, uh, the fat exponent. Really, I mean the fat part of the exponent because culture and society is changing exponentially. If you're not a scientist, when you hear the word exponential, exponential change or exponential anything, you think that means really fast. But that's not what it means at all. And this, this uh, slide illustrates that. That red curve that you see up there is an expon exponential curve. And the horizontal axis is time. So from the left is earlier, and as time goes on, you move to the right. And the vertical height is the amount of the quantity that you have, or whatever you're looking at. Now, if you'll see, when, uh, when, the, when the exponent... When the exponential curve starts, it's very flat. As you move to the right, it doesn't move up very much. It's not fast change, it's just very little change at all. The only time it becomes fast change is at a certain point toward the right, where now, if you move a little bit, you go up a lot, it gets very steep. And that's what I call the fat exponent, or the fat part of the exponent. And that is what characterizes society today, because many of the different aspects of society grow according to these exponential curves. Here's just three examples, population growth, in the center the growth in number of books published, and at the right the growth in number of scientific papers published. So in, in many, many areas of, of, um, of our modern society and culture I have been governed by exponential change, and it's always been the flat, relatively gradual change or change that takes place over centuries or decades. And as Alvin Toffler noted with Future Shock, it has started to accelerate. And now it's accelerated so much it's going to keep accelerating that change comes extremely fast. And it demands the third kind of thinking that animals do, or especially humans, which is elastic thinking. So I can't, uh, don't have the time to go into detail to all the different aspects of elastic thinking, but I can at least describe some of them. Uh, mental set, set shifting, that's your ability in your mind to change the way you're looking at something quickly. So to be able to just change your your way from thinking about something one way to another way to another way. How quickly can you let go of the way you've been thinking and look at something a new way? Might not be a better way, but just a different way. Mental fluency is how fast new ideas come to you. How fast can you generate ideas? If I say, give me how different ways of using a brick, how quickly can you give me those ideas? Divergent thinking is how far apart are those ideas? So, are these all conventional ideas, or are you looking at things in a really weird way that other people wouldn't look at? Uh, idea generation has to do with how, how good are the ideas that you're generating, how useful do they prove to be. And integrative thinking is very important, something that people don't talk about enough, which is that a lot of the progress in solving problems, uh, not just in science and in business, but in your personal life, comes from taking ideas from different areas and combining them and, and using them all together to get the answer. So characteristic, uh, elastic thinking is not uh, like logical, rational thinking in that the emphasis on logic and rational thinking is solving a problem that has been set up. Just like you have the computer rules, then playing the game, that's rational thinking. Understanding the rules to, un to know what kind of uh, um, reasoning you should use, that's a different kind of thinking. When you have a puzzle, often you have to look at things in a different way. And, and this ability to set up the problem that, that's what elastic thinking really focuses on. Also, we think of ra rational, logical thinking as being non-emotional, which it is. But 
elastic thinking has a very large emotional component and is driven by the reward centers in your brain. And it's bottom up, not top down. That takes a little bit to, um, to explain, but you, the basis of it is that your brain is a hierarchy. So you, you have a structure, let's say the uh, frontal cortex has different substructures, one of which is the prefrontal cortex. The free, prefrontal cortex has substructures like the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. We've just learned that the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is made of, I think, a dozen substructures and so on. And the reason that these are, the brain is divided into structures and substructures is that it cooperates on different levels at, at different structures and they all have different purposes. And as you keep going down, you eventually get to the lowest level, which are the individual neurons. Logical, rational thinking tends to be driven by what psychologists and neuroscientists call the executive function of your brain, which is by the large structures like the prefrontal cortex, which dictate what the lower levels of the hierarchy should be doing. Elastic thinking tends to arise from the individual neurons and doing some weird calculations that we don't understand and sending ideas into your consciousness from the unconscious. It's kind of the way you might think that bees or ants cooperate in a society where each individual doesn't have much of a brain, but as a, as a collective society, they can do amazing things. And finally, elastic thinking is nonlinear, which means that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So it's not a step-by-step, -step. you go from A to B to C, and you get one, two, three, but you're going all over the map, and you're going one, four, 26, 100, and you're really getting great results. I'll give you one example just to illustrate what elastic, how elastic thinking differs from logical thinking. A good way to uh, test yourself is to look at riddles. So here's a riddle. Marcia and Marjorie were born on the same day of the same month of the same year with the same mother and father, but they're not twins. How is that possible? I'll give you five seconds to think about that because I don't have much time. But So uh, Marcia and Marjorie, sisters born at the, on the same day, same parents, they're not twins. How can that be? Well, if you haven't gotten the answer, and in both, both, I think about 60% of people get the answer, but it takes them on average about two minutes. Um, here's, if you haven't gotten the answer, here's why. When, when you read this and you, and you read the word Marcia and Marjorie, you picture a couple girls in your mind, okay? And that's setting up the problem. You have the, the problem now, one of the implicit assumptions in the problem is that there's two girls, Marcia and Marjorie. But what if there's a third girl? See, you're excluding that by setting up the problem with just the two people in the riddle, Marcia and Marjorie. But if Marcia and Marjorie have a twin, uh, another, another sister born also at the same day, they're triplets, right? So Marcia and Marjorie are not twins because they're triplets. And what's hard to find, the reason this problem is hard to solve is you set, it's not your reasoning that fails, it's the setup of the problem, which is that you, this whole thing is about two girls. It's about three girls. So that's an example of how elastic thinking helps you get through the um, challenges you have in life and in, in uh, not just in, in artificial riddles, but in business and personal life and science. I can only give you one aspect of uh, the, the parts of your character, your personality that, that play into elastic thinking. And so I chose uh, what's called novelty seek seeking. And psychologists have various tests for, for a lot of these characteristics, and uh, the, the tests can be 40 or 100 uh, questions that they ask you, and then you, you, you answer them, and they then uh, assess your personality in that dimension. 
but they also have some shorter ones. Uh, and so I, I just, there's one that's eight, but I didn't have time for eight, so I took four of them. And these are four questions that you could just answer for yourself. Uh, give it, uh, read the, the statement and answer five if you strongly agree, four if you agree, three if you're neutral, two if you disagree, and one if you strongly disagree. And then add them up. So if you had five for all of them, you'd have 20. If you had one for all of them, you'd have four. And you'll get an answer between that. And I'll just give you a minute to look at that. For people who can't read it, the first one says, I would like to explore strange places. Okay, so five means you strongly agree and one means you strongly disagree. Two, I would like to take off on a trip with no pre-planned routes or timetables. Three, I get restless when I spend too much time at home. And four, I would love to have a new and exciting experiences even if they are illegal. All right, so give your answers from one to five. Okay, add them all up and you have a number, right? Okay, if you all have a number, okay. Well, the average on this is 12. If you're between 10 and 14, then you're... In the, in the pretty much within one standard deviation, we say, but that's where about two-thirds of the people come in. And if you're more toward 20, you're a very adventurous, novelty-seeking, and if you're lower end, then you're more um, averse to risk. So this is just one example of uh, the kind of things that, that play into elastic thinking. And as a scientist, I like to study these things, but as a human, I'd like to recommend to you that you push your score toward the 20 because I think it will serve you well. And in my book, I talk about some ways that you can enhance your abilities at elastic thinking. And I'm just going to list some things here that, that come up through studies in psychology and neuroscience. First of all, don't fear failure, okay? Uh, when I started skiing, I soon learned that the first thing I should do when I get to the slope is fall down. Just make myself fall down. Because if I didn't, I feared, I didn't want, I wanted to be perfect. I didn't want to fall. And then you start getting really skiing in a really weird way. Just get it over with. You're going to fail. And as a scientist, I know that we have many more failures. Scientists, inventors, authors. You have many more failures than successes. But fortunately, just that occasional success is enough. So get past the fear of failure. Related to that is don't be afraid to be wrong or confused. Now, uh, my friend Michael Shermer said yesterday that he hasn't met scientists who say, uh, this is my theory and it's probably wrong. But actually, at least when scientists are working, they say, they say that on a daily basis. So you have a new idea, your first thought is it's probably wrong. The better the idea is, the more, with the more vehemence you use when you say this is probably wrong because you're protecting yourself in a way. I don't want to get too excited because most of the ideas I know are wrong. It's my job to come up idea generation and then to check them and vet them. So don't be afraid to be wrong and you know that everyone makes mistakes. Welcome disagreement. A lot of people, and um, it's a certain uh, uh, part of our culture is that we, we, or parts, you know, in certain groups of our culture, we don't like to have arguments and disagreements. They are very good. Disagreement is good because, not just because it vets your ideas, but because it opens your mind to other ways of thinking. And if you open your mind to other ways of thinking in one area, it can also open your mind to other ways of thinking in another area, and soon you're solving riddles like the one I, I gave you. And I like what Rudy was talking about, how you're how, how your habits and your, uh, can affect your, the epigenetics, which affect your genome. If you keep doing it that way, you can actually get better at elastic thinking. Okay, we're a social species, and, and nobody, not even Isaac Newton, the most famous loner in history, uh, did his work without 
very important key and necessary input from other people, so talk about your ideas to others. Try out new technologies just for fun. When you see a technology that some kid is playing and you go, I don't know what that is, it's so weird, why is he doing that? That's exactly when you should go get it and learn it and figure out how does that work and why is that, why is that interesting. These are ways to open your mind and to broaden your perspective. Welcome diverse people into your lives, okay, and into your business. Studies show that businesses and universities that have a greater breadth of people of different races, different backgrounds from different countries get, dip, get better and different ideas. <clears throat> you can do this yourself by going to different parts of your city that, that are not the same neighborhood or with people who aren't like you. Explore, similarly, explore different food and art. Talk to adolescents and young adults because quite a... Uh, Again, as your brain uh, matures, it starts to censor things. So anyone under 25 is a good person to talk to because that's where the brain gets fully mature and they have more open minds. But even after that, you can still, uh, you can still work on having your mind open by talking to kids. Travel, again, to immerse yourself in other cultures. Uh, I had to make this one political statement, I'm sorry. Welcome other people. Tear down walls. Don't build walls. Don't, pay, don't make other places pay for them. Tear down walls, okay? Mr. Trump, tear down that wall. All right? And finally, uh, practice mindfulness because the more that you understand about who you are, what, what you're thinking, how you're thinking, the better that you can execute all of this. And that's it. Thank you. Elastic uh, Science of Flexible Thinking. <clears throat> Thank you, Dr. Maldonoff. Terrific presentation. Our final session is going to be a creativity panel, and our panel is going to be moderated by Dr. Eva Fattorini. Dr. Fattorini is the founder of Artocene, the social impact company whose mission is to integrate the arts with medicine on a global level. Previously, she had worked as a senior executive at Cleveland Clinic, where she founded Arts and Medicine Institute. She's helping the growth of the program in Abu Dhabi in the UAE and is creating awareness as an international speaker. Eva is a trained dermatologist who has devoted her professional life to making the concept of the arts and medicine a new paradigm. Please welcome our moderator, Eva Fattorini. Our panel um, has three participants who have been with us before, so I'm going to bring them on by name. So, Michael Franti. Satya Hinduja. Finian Makepeace. And we have two new friends joining us. First is David Mash. David is the Senior Vice President for Innovation, Strategy, and Technology at Berkeley. He's a leading authority on music, technology, and education. Rolling Stone has called Mash the industry's leading evangel evangelist for the marriage of music and technology. Welcome, David. And our final panelist is Jiddish Kalat. 
Jiddish works have often been described as distilled poetic investigations into the fundamental themes of existence, interlacing several autobiographical, art historical, political, and celestial references. His works take form in a wide variety of media, including painting, sculptural installations, the animation video, and photography. Welcome, Jatish. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's such a privilege, first of all, to be here for the three days um, of this fantastic symposium, and it's my honor to moderate this great panel. I'll make a very short intro. So my name is Eva Fattorini, and um, um, you know, when I came here, I thought I, knew, I know something about something, and today I know nothing about nothing. I realized that. I don't know if you feel the same way. But which is okay, because we redefine values and definitions every moment as we speak. And we are going to talk about creativity, and we are talking about actually changing old ideas and use our imagination to create something new. So it's good that I know nothing now. Um, the second thing I wanted to say, it's knowledge. I think the knowledge, whether it's acquired or we worked so hard to... Uh, get it is a luxury and we have to respect it and beside being humble about it I think it's very important to always keep in mind how to apply that knowledge to help humanities. The, the third thing is um, reality. We were trying to define reality uh, many times I think in the last three days um, and, you know, to me in my simple mind reality is very simple when I see people suffering and facing death and disease and um, pain, it's very real. That's how I feel reality. And I think the world we live in is very real. So we have to remind ourselves on that as well and think about then how we're going to define reality. And the last thing is questioning. It is really questioning um, if we want to reach the higher awareness and we really realize in the maybe last moments of our lives so that we need it, we want to get there, but we realize also we don't have enough time. How do we get this message? And also if we are aware of something, and it's very important to be shared with humanities, how are we going to spread the message globally when we know that it has to transcend potential language, cultural, geographical, religious barriers? Can arts and creativity help in that? So that being said, I'd like to open the panel and welcome our distinguished, wonderful guests and artists. And uh, my first question will go to David. And uh, welcome, David. And you've been with Berklee College of Music for four and a half decades, almost 44 years. Um, and we talked about it before. You were using one side of your brain or part of your brain in a very mathematical way to compose music. You were using digital technology and then you were yet creating beautiful music. How did you do that? Can you tell us more about it? Sure. Um, I, I guess uh, I'd like to just start by saying that you know, um, musicians throughout history have always tried to use the latest technologies to make their music. Um, 
And just a few examples, for instance, you know, uh, when we move beyond the human voice, uh, you know, first we start with, um, you know, hollowing out a log and beating on it, and then maybe hollowing out a, a log and blowing through it. And then eventually we got to um, more complicated um, technologies like metallurgy, and we made brass horns, and then we got all sorts of springs and, and things, and we made valves for those horns so they could be more playable. Um, eventually, we got to instruments as complicated as the piano. We, we don't think about it as a, um, a very technological instrument, but at the time, you know, you, you don't touch the strings with your fingers. You press a key, and that tricks, triggers a, a lever, which then hits a hammer, which then hits the string, knocks a, a damper off of it, and then when you let your finger off, a damper goes and stops the string. It's a very complicated technology, and yet... Um, you know, musicians were looking for new ways of expressing themselves, always looking for new sounds. Um, the creative urge, I think, is always to make something new and try to find your own personal voice in that as we seek, you know, internally. So, um, you know, I think uh, after World War II, um, musicians started to think about using the, the kinds of technologies that were made available by um, electronics uh, analog electronics that came out of communications technology and radio technology. And um, in the first time, I guess, in uh, 1964, uh, Bob Moog demonstrated the first commercially available synthesizer, which was a truly, totally electronic instrument. And when musicians started to use those tools, and I, I know because I was one of the early people who adopted these technologies, um, there, weren't a, there wasn't really an instrument design that you could play. You actually had to order, I want three oscillators and two filters and um, uh, a couple of signal modifiers, et cetera, et cetera. And then you would you know, explore uh, those, those tools in order to make your music. Um, just previous uh, speaker, Leonard, was showing us some slides about the fat curve of the exponent. Um, and you know, we're exactly on that in terms of music uh, instrument development right now as well because um, in the last 15 years or so the, uh, the rise of digital technology has become so affordable that it's now impacted the kinds of instruments <coughs> that we're developing and using. So um, and when you think about digital technologies you know you think about when you use your smartphone or your computer um, you're, you're really kind of using um, kind of rational thought a lot. And, and, of course, that's not really part of what we do when we're creating. Uh, we, we need to be um, you know, quiet and aware and, and listen, and then we hear the music that comes to us. Mm -hmm. And I think, so it's a, it's a kind of a juxtaposition of these two um, very complicated things. But David, was, was this um, rapid development of technology <laughs> taking away your creative energy at all? Um, no, I think... Um, Again, borrowing from Leonard's talk, you know, I think flexible thinking is what becomes part of our, our reality. So, you know, we, we, we have actually, you know, people say um, that composition, for instance, is 10% uh, inspiration and 90% perspiration. And I think that's just another way of saying, um, you know, the difference between uh, the creative moments and then the, you know, the, the, okay. the rational things that you do in order to express those things and, and get them down. And so... Um, you know, I think what's really different about right now is that um, when we think about the piano, I'll just go back to that example, um, you know, we have over 100 years of, um, actually over a couple hundred years now, of, um, 
of time to learn to develop how to play those instruments. And you know, when a musician starts to play their instrument, um, they learn in a very way, just like um, uh, walking. You know, you don't really think about how you walk when you walk because you've learned it uh, at, at an early age and you've kind of internalized it. It becomes an autonom- uh, automatic um, activity. And so when you learn to play the guitar, we watched Michael play last night, you know, you, you learn these uh, movements that connect to sound and you hear the sound and you um, automatically make those movements. You don't have to think about that anymore so that your mind can go, um, I, I guess I should be careful how I use these words in this, uh, in this audience, um, <laughs> but you can, uh, you can become uh, quiet and aware and, um, and through that process you have creative ideas. And then you go and execute them on your instrument. So as I was saying, we have a couple hundred years of technique development for instruments like um, the guitar and the piano and, and such, but we don't have anywhere near that amount of time for the development of, of learning technologies for these new instruments. And so, you know, th- these instruments are being developed at, you know, at a very rapid clip right now with not a whole lot of um, materials to, for musicians to learn how to use them. And so I think that becomes part of the biggest problem. So um, I've been focused for the last three and a half decades on um, thinking about how we teach musicians to think flexibly um, in order to take advantage of these great new tools so that they can master them, they can become automatic, and then they can um, have their creative ideas and, um, and use them to make music. Um, and then um, in the last dozen years or so, I've been really fascinated by the um, the fact that the same technologies that we're using to make music can also use us, uh, be used to help us learn music. And, you know, I think the, you know, the great work that has been demonstrated with, um, with the uh, humogram in the, the idea of bringing uh, knowledge and, uh, you know, great thought to a wide variety of people, regardless of time and place, I think is really an important part of the future of education for music as well, and using those kind of technologies to well, not the same as being present uh, in the same place at the same time, it, it does help us to get those ideas out and help uh, you know, young people learn how to use these tools to make music. Thank you. And Jitish, so let's talk a little bit about visual arts and creativity and consciousness. Jitish, um, by the way, is a fantastic artist. He was curating the second edition of Kochi Muzira's Biennale uh, in 2014. And the, the theme was also kind of associated with what we are talking about. Could you tell us a little bit more about your work and something that relates to the theme today? Um, thanks, Eva, and thank you to Deepak and you and everyone from the foundation, everyone in this room. I feel extremely thankful for everything one has heard and taken in over the last three days. Um, well, I'm acutely aware that while talking about the arts and especially while sharing work as a visual artist, it would be a bit like Michael trying to get on stage and telling us uh, about musical notes rather than picking the guitar. Because in some ways, some of these works are deeply experiential and you enter them through, with your body. And, uh, and the viewing of the work and understanding of the work is in the manner in which you kind of navigate within the presence and inside the work. I thought I might share just two works with all of you. And one of them um, I feel uh, primarily like sharing because it's... Uh, umbilically linked to the date 9-11, um, uh, which is today. 
Um, and it's a piece called uh, Public uh, Notice. So this is a piece called uh, Public Notice 3, and it's part of a trilogy of works um, called Public Notice, uh, which are spread across a decade. Um, the public notices actually began for me as a kind of personal inquiry, in a way, thinking back uh, into moments in the past, with this feeling that perhaps returning to a moment long gone by, to an utterance spoken a very long time ago by an individual in a particular context when reincarnated might create a kind of webwork of relationships within which we might contemplate the questions that preoccupy us today. So Public Notice 3 uh, really unfolds. It's a speech that unfolds almost like a transcript taking form on the risers of the steps of the Museum of the Art Institute of Chicago. It opened on September 11th, 2010 and closed exactly a year later on the same date. Um, so as one um, comes closer to the, to the steps, you realize that it's a speech that unfolds to the words, Sisters and Brothers of America, um, and continues to call for universal tolerance, death of fanaticism, fundamentalism, bigotry, intolerance, uh, all the words that began to populate our collective thought in a post-9-11-2001 world. But these words were spoken on 9-11-1893, which happened to be the first parliament of religions, spoken by the Indian spiritual leader, Swami Vivekanand, that Subhash also mentioned the other day. And many of us would know him primarily as the carrier of the message of yoga in the North American continent. But speaking on the morning of 9-11, um, so this speech actually was read by visitors at the Art Institute at the very site where the auditorium stood um, in 1893. The very building was the site of the parliament. And the words kind of unfold through this illumination. Uh, the, the words are formed by several thousand light bulbs that collectively become these signals that refract the speech. But in the five colors that uh, the US Homeland Security had marked as threat codes in the, in the moment post 9-11. Uh, and in fact, this, this spectrum of threat, which always remained at the level of severe and high, uh, become the speech uh, sort of the, the speech is read through the afterimage because each time you read a word and you read the next word, you actually get the afterimage of the previous color overlaid and overlaid uh, each time one reads. Um, in fact, in the unfolding of the work itself was central, the, the, the position of the grand staircase at the heart of the museum that kind of connects this encyclopedic museum where going from, you know, Islamic and Middle Eastern art to European modernism or Japanese to pre-Columbian art you would have to navigate and crisscross Vivekanand's words um, uh, in a way uh, stitching together these numerous corridors of global culture. Um, the words were laid in a way that as you came from the two sides uh, of the staircase, uh, you read the same set of words. At mid-landing, they were doubled and quadrupled at the top. So as you ascend, you read the same set of words irrespective of where you come and in whichever way you're headed. But if you do head back on the other side and try to reread the text from the other end, you create a kind of echo of the same words uh, in your mind. And also as you leave the artwork, you leave with these incredible sight lines that an encyclopedic museum provides where objects provide the lens through which one experiences another object. So public notice became uh, something that you read alongside these um, ancient artifacts from all over the world. 
The second piece I thought I'd share is um, a piece called Covering Letter. Um, and Covering Letter is, in fact, a dark room, a dark chamber, in which um, a shaft of light uh, throws open a cascade of, of dark, shadowy letters that flow on the ground. And you see, intercepting this film of light is a film of mist. And in that film of mist, one sees ascending alphabets. And you realize that what you're reading is actually a letter. It says, dear friend, friends have been urging me to write to you for the sake of humanity. And it's a seven-line plea um, asking the reader of the letter to contemplate what one might do uh, to leave the world a better place through one's actions. Um, this is how the piece kind of feels. Uh, it moves from relative illegibility and gains legibility as the letter rises. And the, you realize the date uh, was 23rd of July 1939, five weeks before the Second World War. As the letter leaves, you realize the author of the letter um, was Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, writing at this very imminent moment in world's history to Adolf Hitler in the hope that uh, perhaps there might be uh, a rerouting of the history as we know it. But I've always felt that this letter was intended to travel way beyond its intended recipient and delivery date and could be read by anyone, anytime, anywhere. And uh, the letter, in fact, uh, is a seven line, almost like a haiku that you can read, but also in the place, in the space of covering letter, you could walk through the letter. And when you do, uh, the letter briefly dissipates uh, and forms again before another viewer passes. In a way, your body occupying the space where uh, you have a correspondence from one of the greatest proponents of peace trying to reach out to perhaps <laughs> one of the blatant perpetrators of violence who inhabited the planet at that very time. Thank you. That's amazing. It gives you goosebumps, huh? <laughs> um, Satya, so, so you were talking about the sound and vibration and also the healing associated with it. So we heard a little bit about technology and we heard your fantastic uh, performance. Would you mind sharing with us your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, thank you for having me here again. It's, uh, it's like my dream to talk to all of you here. <laughs> so... Um, I'd like to start briefly about um, my journey in sound and how I began. Um, I'm an alumni of Berklee College of Music. Um, I worked in the Indian film industry for six years. I started collaborating with artists, with sound. Um, and then over the course of the years, um, I was detected with fibromyalgia. And at that point, when I was 27, very confused, didn't know what was going on, um, I decided to explore different tools that use sound outside of music to bring sort of rehabilitation to myself. So got into that realm and decided I needed to go deeper um, and study electronic music because that was the scientific side, which is exactly what David was talking about, um, which is the rational side of the brain. And um, uh, got me to come to New York and uh, over the course of the years, I was found to come to the science of frequency. Now this is a science that's not proven yet, but um, specifically honing into one frequency is actually what uh, affects energy centers in our body. And that as I 
experienced this within myself and I've been using sound as a tool for myself for healing. Um, I developed this new piece of, you know, uh, this new genre of music called alchemic electronica that I've just recently coined. But what it does is it's marrying music for, uh, f- like film scoring is writing for emotion for, for a film, but the goal for me is to write for a human body and a mind to basically switch off thought because as humans we have a lot of monkey mind brain activity going on at all times and in a uh, age of stress as we live in today I mean we're living in a, an epidemic of stress literally mm-hmm. um, the only way that I found myself to uh, you know quiet the mind was through marrying a frequency, a foundational root of frequency, and then composing music around it, which again is marrying the rational side of um, sound and then the intuitive um, silent side, which is helping us just get the music within us and through us out into the universe. Um, I'd like to actually give you, uh, you know, this quote is one that I completely believe in. There is, it is said, a kind of spirit music in the world, continuously but silently playing. And what that, again, is trying to communicate is that as humans, we hear from 20 to 20,000 hertz of sound every single day, um, but there's frequency way below and above our auditory range. And um, even though we don't hear it and it's intangible, sound is energy. So if we actually become aware of how sound is affecting us in our environments, um, we can actually create a shift within ourselves. So I just want to tell you how I landed up, um, you know, meditating with sound, because even though I'm Indian, I never really meditated before 2014. And it's quite ironic that I had to travel all the way to America and come here (laughs) to find my roots, which is basically where I come from. So um, in 2014, I uh, was, as as I was flowing, because I flow as an artist, um, I came across a flyer on the West Side Highway that said uh, Free Spirituality Week uh, in New York um, by an Indian meditation guru named Sri Chinmoy. And the one thing that came out to me was creativity and meditation. So I landed up there and uh, without any expectations. And um, they gave us four sheets of paper and you know, four different colors and made us hear four different pieces of music and got us to meditate with each piece of sound. Now, after the meditation, we were asked to draw the first uh, drawing that comes to mind and write the first word. So a 200-people room, uh, you know, four different pieces of music, four different drawings. Um, It was incredible for me as an experiment to see how 50% of the room's words were positive and 50% were negative. So my scientific mind somehow was like, oh, I want to do this at home every day. So I come home and 2014, pretty much my whole year was this. Um, I started waking up every morning, uh, playing a different piece of music and starting to meditate and drawing and writing the first word. So every day, again, like marrying the left and side, the right side of the brain, which is, you know, again, flexible thinking, thanks to Leonard's talk, was what started to unfold every single day, every single day, something, and I had no idea why I was doing this. I had no idea what was going to happen. But 
what I started to notice, and this is, you know, it's very interesting that the panel is called Creativity and Infinite Possibilities because this wall now is like what I wake up to every morning. And it is infinite possibilities because one of the drawings, um, I don't know if you can see it, but um, one of the drawings actually is like a, like a tunnel with frequency. Uh, and it actually is what started to manifest into what I do now, which is alchemic sonic environments, which is what you guys experienced yesterday. And what that means is, as I started to use sound to meditate for myself, to quieten my own mind, um, I started to create music like that for other people. And 2014 till now, I've sort of done this experiment with many kinds of people, young, old, artistic people, non-artistic, all types of communities uh, in different parts of the world as an experiment, just out of you know, experiential um, performance, um, that the fastest way to actually quieten the mind is to marry all the different realms of frequencies that can help the monkey mind stop and you can connect to your inner self much faster. Especially, you know, what Eva was talking about, how do we do this fast in a world today where, you know, in the real world, people are suffering and they need, you know, we can talk about meditation programs and stuff, but if someone is working six jobs a day to survive, how do they really do this? So what I started to notice is this is the fastest way to get people to connect to their inner selves because that's who you truly are as a person. So um, that leads me to my last slide, which is basically what it's trying to communicate is the top part of that, there's three parts of the triangle. The top part of the triangle actually has a Fibonacci, um, a golden mean ratio. The left side, again, it's so interesting that both of them are not what we can see, because that's exactly what happens. We don't see that in the universe, the Fibonacci. <laughs> and the left side of the triangle is the cochlea in the ear, which is also in a spiral. So when I was researching for this talk, I was like, oh, that's interesting. I never thought of that before. I mean, I never needed to research that before. But if we think about it, the cochlea in the ear is where sound travels within and then goes directly to the brain and fires up the, you know, the neural patterns in the brain. Correct me if I'm wrong because I'm not a scientist. <laughs> but then at the same time, so what I started doing was I started marrying sound and light, which is also a spiral of frequency, so that as you can create an environment of curated sound with curated light, you can actually shift the energy within your body to get to that higher state, which is the universe and your inner self. And um, that's what I actually am working on now. But um, the goal for me as an artist is um, to help do this, not just as an artist, but to really work with whoever I can as, as with scientists and collaborate with them to see how we can test these frequencies. Because I think there's been a lot of research done on music and how music affects emotions and um, sound affects different parts of the brain, you know, the emotions, the memory, the visual cortex, every part of our aut uh, autonomic nervous system is affected by uh, music. But I don't think there's enough research on specific sound and frequencies. So. I believe that that would be the future of medicine if we could actually spend time and, uh, you know, research on sound. So thank you. That's just what I wanted to say.
Well, Tesla said that if we want to discover the secrets of the universe, we'll have to look into the energy and frequency and vibrations. So I think you're on the right path. Finian, so um, we heard you performing and we heard what you're doing, amazing things. I think you found a very unique way to uh, discover the message and use your artistic skills to spread the message all around the world to save this rock uh, that we have to live together to the rest of our history, right? So tell us, please, something about it. Thanks for, for having me here. This has been such an honor to be here with all of you all and the, the amazing thought. Uh, it's been awesome to, to tap into new ideas with everybody. Um, so I, just want, I guess I wanted to start with Kiss the Ground's mission is we can do this. And it doesn't sound like your typical mission. And, and a lot of people have told us, what's your real mission? And, and that, that's the funny part is that really is our mission is that we can do this. Because um, when we dug down to find out what it was all about is really uh, changing a view that from the current view of probably we can't do this to we can do this, uh, and meaning uh, the future we're facing with climate change. Um, so I've been an artist, uh, performing artist, for a, most of my life, um, but especially the last 12 years professionally, uh, traveling and touring and, and spreading messages through my music. Um, but what I wanted to talk about today is kind of the, the separation that occurs in our modern society of the feeling I think a lot of times we run into with ourselves um, and I see and people I interact with is a separation of I can do this thing, those people can do that thing, I went to school for this thing which means I'll end up doing this thing over here for the next 10 years of my life. And I think we're at a time in the history of humanity where we're facing such huge consequences if we don't have a pretty big pivot for all humanity that um, I wanted to speak on the creative in all of us and especially to the creative in the people who consider themselves Creative and start to look at the confines, the, the confinement that we all kind of have in our lives. And I'm speaking as someone who personally has lots of confinement of, no, that's not me, I can't do that thing, but I can do this stuff. And I've given myself feedback loops of, yes, I can do this, I can do this, uh, and still noticed, I'm 33 now, and noticed huge parts of my life where I've blocked off access because I just told myself that's somebody else who can do that type of thing. And as a creative, we sometimes, um, I think, have more allowance to jump into new things or test out new stuff, but we also have, <clears throat> in doing so, we also can probably sometimes get a quick reflection of where we're blocked to jump into the new thing because we're expected to, as artists, be like, oh yeah, try new stuff, and we get to experience firsthand that that sensation of like, oh, that's out of my comfort zone, yeah, I'm going to put it over there and do this comfortable stuff. Um, so what I wanted to speak about was kind of the phenomenon that we have in our society where when you go to school, for example, for graphic art, um, what you think of in the long term for success is 
you know, you're making billboards for uh, huge blockbuster movies, and you're like, oh, there it is. I, we were just driving, my wife and I were just driving down to get here, and I was like, well, look at, look at that. That's a big billboard. It's really beautiful. That's someone who's really, really gifted at graphic art made. And it's going to make it so that movie, in the eyes of everyone driving down this highway, their view is going to be that movie probably is pretty awesome because the billboard's awesome. And I think for everyone in this room can relate to, you know, our, our actions of our lives are derived from our view of the world. Whatever views we have lead to our actions, which lead to the outcomes of our lives, whether it's small things or big things, brushing your teeth or taking on climate change as your responsibility, whatever it might be. Like, your view relates to the outcome of your life via your actions. So um, I guess the, the question I'm posing for everyone, in, including myself and especially the people who are invested in art, is where have we confined ourselves to, yeah, that makes sense if I used my artistic skills to make this post, beautiful poster for this blockbuster movie. That's in line with the current view of what I would do after I graduate from graphic art school, right? And um, I wanted to illustrate, um, just from, from Kiss the Ground, I've been working with Kiss the Ground for, since we, I've helped found it about two and a half, three years ago, and I was frustrated at the lack of my own skills with graphic arts, even though my dad's an artist, and, you know, I just, but I had separated from my skill set, and I didn't have time to get into it. But the point I'm making is there was something magical that happened where someone who, within two months of declaring that, well, let's just give it back. Her name's Kiki, and she's our graphic artist for Kiss the Ground. But she worked in the corporate world for most of her life, getting great jobs, and she had the epiphany of, I've been blocked in my creativity um, or expansion because I've thought to myself, I want to do good in the world, but that would never pay the bills. And I firmly believe now, seeing the, the manifestation of what's going on in the world right now, where people are becoming more aware, people with lots of wealth, people with middle wealth, whatever, everyone's becoming more aware of the dire situations that we're heading into, and I think that if there are more people like Kiki who are saying, you know what, I'm going to only work for groups or companies that are doing really great stuff that I support. Therefore, my artistic skills were, will be lended to shifting the view. Because we're all aware how massively impactful propaganda is. It literally shapes our view probably more than we would like to admit. Our view of what our actions should be in the world, right? So artists and art and creativity is always at play. I mean, if you look at the fact of, I'm a political science major from UCLA, so like I studied the, um, before we went into World War II, most of our country was like, heck no, we will never go to World War II. This is crazy. But then a propaganda thing went out there with like, this is what we need to do, and it worked. Not saying that we should brainwash people, but the, there's a lot of power in our views, and it's all around us. If we start to notice it, we can start to say, wait a minute, there's a lot of creatives out there who if they started to connect with, and I hate to, to rag on them, but there's a lot of uh, amazing groups out there with amazing messages for the world that have okay budgets, that could hire somebody, but there's this gap of like, it has to come from both ways. It can't just be the organizations with great ideas being like, we need a better graphics, graphic artist because our ideas need to live in the world 
at the same level that that billboard for, for the blockbuster movie is out there. So the question is, can we as a community of people who are, who are wanting to see a new view emerge admit to ourselves that we're going to have to, to reach out to the graphic people and to the, the musicians and people and saying, hey, look, we need a higher quality of art and music and also if we are those graphic artists and people being like, hey, I can support my life uh, financially and, and be comfortable while I am making the new view for the future and inspiring people with that ability. So um, I guess, guess what I'm really trying to get out there is that we have an opportunity. If we really start to look at how much we currently are uh, living our lives, the actions of our lives based on the inundation of media and uh, concepts that are around us, whether through music or art, um, to ask the creatives, hey, look, you're not confined into, you would, your only route to make a living in this world is to go and, and make Coca-Cola advertisements that look awesome. We can start to create these images and the view that I think will help look, look at the pivot that needs to happen in the next five years actually happen because if we look at the, the sides are pretty uneven right now and I'm really excited that there is this concept happening in the creative community of like, wait a minute, we don't have to separate ourselves. I could literally do a presentation at, in Sacramento, the capital of California, to these senators. If we team up with really great graphic artists, we can make this so much more powerful than what they usually see, which is a terrible PowerPoint presentation that has no feeling and guts and emotion in it. We have to be able to say, like, look, the history of the world says at, it, there are so many great examples back in time when we had the art, people who were artistic, also our political leaders, also our revolutionaries, they were multifaceted in their abilities. And, I, and I'm inviting the merging of politics, of uh, consumerism, of um, citizenship in general, and not separating the creativity and the artist. And, and I'm honored to be here on the stage with, with creatives who are doing that actively, but I think there's way, 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 way more room Sure. To include. Yeah. So, so I, I definitely agree. Thank you. And, and one of the things that the problem with the art is that it has been seen as decoration or entertainment for way too long. And arts as a whole has a much deeper meaning and power, a latent power that we are trying to activate. Michael, why do you do what you do? <laughs> Well, I make music for one reason, which is that I believe that every single person on this planet should be happy, healthy, and equal. And from when I started in music, it's been dedicated to, to that. And uh, I remember when I was a, a kid, um, my mother um, was uh, a piano player in our church. And every kid, there was five kids in our house. We were all different sizes and shapes and colors and sexual identities. We all went on to do different professions. But everybody played a musical instrument, except for me. And <laughs> I was the tallest kid, and my mom uh, uh, taught, led the choir in church, so I had to stand in the back of the <laughs> choir because I was the tallest kid. And most of the time, I would lip-sync the words. <laughs> Which is really great training for becoming a pop star. If you ever want. Um, 
But uh, I would stand in the back and I, and I would be surrounded by like all these different people singing different parts and I would feel this like energy. I'd feel like, whoa, you know. And when the church started singing, I, I would feel this, this power. And sometimes, even when I was a little kid, there would be words and hymns and the harmonies that were going on and I'd start to cry as a, as a, as a little kid. I was so moved by the music. And when I got into uh, university, I had a great uh, priest who was my English teacher and he taught English 101, and I walked into the class the first day, and uh, somehow I managed to get all the way through American high school without ever learning how to write a proper essay. <laughs> but I walk into this class, and um, Father Huerta says, every single person in this class is either going to get an A, or you fail. And I just like folded up my books. I was like, I'm out of here. I'm going to fail. And he said, what I mean by this is that I will sit with you and I will work with you until your work is an A paper. And I will not allow you to turn it in until it is. And I will sit with you after school. You can come to my, uh, where I live at night if you want anything. And I will work with you until it's done. And so he taught me how to write and how to organize thoughts and how to create a thesis for what you're talking about. And then paragraphs that substantiated that. And then a closing that that summed it all up. And that's what a musician does. So we take these sounds, these ideas, these emotions that are out there. And they're, they're infinite now with electronic music and all, you know, piano and ancient drums as well as our own voices and we can take those things and and to organize them this sound this drum sound this rhythm this melody and finally these words on top of it to create something that is uh that opens people's hearts open people's souls and um like you're mentioning it's an incredibly challenging time right now to be alive it is so stressful and there are so many issues in the world that need to be addressed and uh, there's times when our bodies just feel worn out, our minds feel like incredibly taxed, and then we're driving home in traffic, and all of a sudden, Bob Marley's <laughs> easy skanking comes on, and we're just like, yo, I don't care where I am, I am so happy to be here in traffic today, I feel good, I'm feeling alive, and it reaches our soul, and our soul goes, you know what, you can go a little bit further, you can come home tonight and you can hug your, your spouse. You can reach out to your kids. Now you have the energy to sit and do that homework with your kids, how to teach your kid to write an essay. You know? and, and so that's the, the you know, incredible power of music just on a day-to-day basis, the way it affects us all. But now if we apply that to something that is greater than ourselves. My mom used to say it's not enough just to have talents that were either you were either born with or talents that you've earned in life. You have to share those talents with other people. And so I remember going to my first uh, concert. I won tickets on a radio show in the middle of the night. They were like, the seventh caller will win tickets. And I called in. And I, I waited and listened. And they were like, oh, nobody's called in yet. So the, the second caller will call in and gets it. And so uh, I called in. And they go, you're the first caller. You get the tickets. <laughs> and I went and saw this man named Linton Questy Johnson. He's this little... Um, uh, man from London, he's Jamaican, uh, but grew, grew, grew up in London. And he st- walks out on stage and he delivers this poem called Sonny's Letter, 
without any music behind him. And it was a poem about this young man whose brother was being killed by, or beaten by a police officer. And he intervened. And in his intervention, he killed the police officer. And he's writing a letter home to his mother about how sorry he is for being in jail. But he just couldn't stand there and, and see this happening to his brother. And then after he reads the letter, the band kicked him behind him into this heavy reggae bass rhythm. And he read the poem or recited the poem again on top of the music. And again, I I just had tears well up in my eye. And when I was 15 years old, I said, that's what I want to do right there. That's what I want to do. And so through my music, uh, I've always told the stories of people who feel left out. And I feel like there's some part of all of us who feel like we don't belong, like we're not important, like we don't matter in the world. And I believe that all of us do. Every single person here, every single person in the world is significant. And when you tell people that, or when you show people that they are, then they become that, they embody that, and they give it back. And uh, there was a a woman that I met who saw a film that I may call, I Know I'm Not Alone. And in 2004 and 2005, I went to um, Iraq and I played music on the streets for people there in the daytime for Iraqi civilians. And at night, I'd play for U.S. soldiers. And then after that, I went to Israel and Palestine. And I did the same thing in, in Israel as well as in the West Bank and Gaza. And just would play music and then talk to people about their life. And this woman came up to me and she said, you know, I live in Denver, Colorado. I'm a hairdresser. Like, what do I have to give the world? And she said, then I, I saw your film. And she, and she said, a woman came into her... Uh, hairdressing shop who was going through chemotherapy and she sat down with this woman she started to comb her hair and she realized that there was just nothing that she could do for this woman's hair it was just falling out in clumps so she sat there with the woman and she shaved her head and with each shave the tears started to stream down this woman's face as she talked about her life and transformation through chemotherapy and um, by the end of it the woman looked in the mirror and she said you know I actually look really good, just bald. (laughs) And this woman said, all right, here's what we're going to do. Every Thursday, we are going to have um, a a night where we meet the beauty needs of people who are going through chemotherapy. And so she found a way to do what she can um, with the the skills and the talents that she has. And, uh, uh, okay. Um, So in... um, uh, 9-11 in 1999, I, I collaborated with 150 artists around the world to put on this event called Mumia 911. It was We wanted to call uh, for an emergency day of action for uh, a man who's on death row in Pennsylvania um, who's accused of killing a police officer, and we felt like his case hadn't been tried properly. And so... 150 artists in different places in the world all put on different events, art, music, poetry, everything. And I put on a concert in San Francisco. So, and we did it on September 11th, 1999, because we wanted to use the number 911 to draw attention to the emergency status of his, of his case. And we did it for two years. And then in, in 2001, the attacks of September 11th occurred on that day. And so we changed... Uh, uh, we, we postponed the festival, and in the week following, there started to be all these hate crimes in San Francisco. People were breaking windows of what they perceived to be Muslim-owned shops. Many of them were Hindus or other religions, but they saw brown people and uh, owning these shops, and, and there started to be these hate crimes. So we wanted to declare San Francisco a hate-free zone. So we brought together all different 
people from the faith-based communities. We brought together musicians and we put on a concert in the park and you know, a, a thousand people showed up. But what we said that day is that we don't want this day on uh, September 11th and the attacks of September 11th to be used to beat the drums of war. We want it to be used to beat the drums for peace and to sing the songs for peace. So every year after that on September 11th, we put on a festival in San Francisco and we called it the Power to the Peaceful Festival. And by 2010, as you can see in this picture, it grew to be 80,000 people um, coming there. Um, every year. Um, a few years ago, uh, this is my wife, sorry, who's here. <laughs> and um, we, we uh, wanted to figure out how there could be a way that she could combine what we do, what she does in healthcare. She's an emergency room nurse with what I do in music. And there was um, a, a gentleman who, and his wife who were tweeting me. Um, this is them, Steve and Hope, December. And Steve had very advanced stages of ALS. And um, he said he wanted to meet me, and it, uh, I was his favorite artist. We invited them to the show, and Hope was wheeling him around in his wheelchair because he couldn't operate it anymore with his hands. Um, ALS is probably the worst diagnosis you can get. One day your finger doesn't work. A few weeks later you wake up, your hand doesn't work. Eventually you die of paralysis. And so um, uh, in the middle of the show, Steve whispered to his wife, Hope, he said, I wanted to get up and dance. So with all her strength, she lifted his rigged body up out of the chair, and they had this beautiful dance in front of 20,000 people. And I started to cry, and Sar started to cry. I look at my whole tough band members and road crew, they're all crying. And I said, let's do this for as many poss- families as we possibly can. And so our Do It For The Love nonprofit, we invite people with advanced stages of life-threatening illness and children and adults with special needs and wounded veterans to go see any live concert by any artist in North America. And we've sent people to see everything from Celine Dion to Garth Brooks to uh, Metallica and Jay-Z and Beyonce. And uh, I never imagined in my life I would have bought as many Taylor Swift concert tickets (laughs) as I have. But she's our favorite artist at the moment. And... uh, um, this is me in Baghdad in, in 2004, uh, playing for soldiers on the street. But um, uh, I, uh, once again, I, I make music because I believe that everyone should be happy, healthy, and equal. And um, I believe that music is, is one of the ways that we, that we get there. Fantastic. Four more minutes. <laughs> It's just amazing. I think we could all cry seeing these beautiful images. We have four more minutes to deliver the message to the audience and maybe 250,000 people watching you. You have a few seconds. What is the key message that you would like to say? David? Um, Well, I think that um, we've all been discussing the power of music uh, and art and, um, and the arts in general to affect positive change in the world. And so I think that this audience and the audience watching us uh, I'd like to just invite them all to help us um, make that message come true. And uh, especially, I'm really interested in collaborating with the, um, all the technology that we can to bring these kinds of messages to as many people as we can. Thank you. Jitish? You know, I'm reminded of um, being a creativity panel, reminded of two lines from two artists. Uh, One hundred years ago, Marcel Duchamp, who presented the idea of the ready-made and said that any object can be a work of art the moment the artist chooses to call it that, and hence harnesses a whole web work of meaning in the object. 
and Joseph Boyce 50 years ago saying that everyone is an artist and thus throwing open the, the, the gates of creativity. Satya. Mm-hmm. Sorry. It's <laughs> like listening to him. Um, uh, taking on from Jitish, I believe that we're all artists as human beings and it doesn't matter if you're a scientist, you're an actor, you're a, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. We're all artists. We've been trained to live in one side of the world and the other and I think it's time to unite both sides of our brain and actually live a whole brain state um, because we have the capacity Um, and I feel the only way to actually start doing that is first to quieten your mind so um, the simplest way to do this is First, be aware, start noticing anytime you have any stress coming up, be aware and start to make any sound. It doesn't matter what religion, what uh, country you come from, you can actually just start humming like, "Mm, that's it, and you're actually creating a shift in your energy pattern. Once you start doing that, then you can actually have a clear mind to do the next thing. Thank you. That's my message. Um, I I would say yes to everything that the rest of the panelists are saying, and uh, we're all, we're all view shifters. We're either continuing and sharing what's already there for our families, friends, communities, and now that we're using technology and we're connected to the whole world, um, we have an ability, each of us, to be creative or not creative, whatever we want to call it, but you are essentially uh, shifting a view, whether you like it or not, for yourself and everyone around you. And just to, to step into that and enjoy the power that that can be in your community, in your household, uh, in your relationships, uh, or for any greater cause that you want to be involved in, it's, it's really a time now where we can connect with, with so many folks uh, close and far away, and we can shift the view of, of our world very quickly if we all work together on it. Michael? Be your best, serve the greater good and rock out wherever you are. And I'd just like to show the final slide to close the panel, please. Um, Amanda shared this with me. Amanda after gave a most amazing talk. She said that we can't define cosmos unless we draw an arbitrary line, a boundary, because only if you observe object, you have to be observed and be observer. Remember what she said. So I was wondering, um, so when you look at this medium, this one line, just keep on going, allows us to see this universe uh, in interaction with each other, so it allows the time to flow and events to happen. I wonder, this is what the universe really is, it's nothingness, and I wonder, just next slide please, whether art is actually that boundary and line that will help us see the universe not as a nothingness and a black hole, but instead as a world full of light and love and beauty and compassion and truth. Thank you.